Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, you are really good. You oversee your word, the reading of it. Holy Spirit, you have inspired this text and you are at work in the hearts of believers in this room. Would you do a miraculous work of unveiling the truth and the beauty and the power of this text to us as a people? And I pray that as a result of this, that all of us, every man and woman and child in this room today, that we would be the sorts of people that live lives that are saturated with love, love that touches every part of our lives and everything that our lives touch. I pray that you would unlock that by all that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, that we would be a community like that. Come and move in power. Holy Spirit, help me to do this work for the sake of the saints today. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been on a journey through the book of Hebrews and we come to our final week this morning with that reading, the fullness of chapter 13. We hear the way that the preacher who's been writing and speaking this epistle from Hebrews, the way that this preacher has concluded the work that he's been doing. As we've been saying, Hebrews, we've entitled Jesus is Better. It has been an exposition of what does it look like to see Jesus clearly and for a community to have him centrally exalted in such a way that we say he really is better than everything and everyone else. So we've traced this throughout the, the sermon slash letter that is Hebrews, this word of exhortation as he calls it at the conclusion. And we've said that Jesus has been displayed as grand and glorious in so many ways and we've, we've learned together that because of all that he's accomplished, we have access to the very heart of God, to the holy of holies. And in the last three weeks, the final three chapters, what we've talked about is what flows out of a life that has been situated in the very heart of God because of all of the grandeur and the beauty of Jesus. And we said that it's a life marked by faith and hope and then lastly in chapter 13, it's a life marked by love. A life that is like a sponge that is soaked all the way through, that Jesus is saying you're welcomed into the presence of God in such a way that he will envelop you and saturate you, that you will live a life that is so saturated that love is dripping out and touching every part of your life. This text is going to commend us going to call to us and, and empower us to be the sorts of people that live love-saturated lives. And what I want to do with our time is to talk about what does that look like and how do we go about it? What does it look like to live love-saturated lives and how do we as a people go about it? Well, first, what does it look like to be a person that is living a life saturated in love? The first thing is this, it's kind of a marker, it's a litmus test. It's one of the ways that this text is exposing. If you're living this life, this is what it will look like. You will have relationships that are wide and deep. The people that are far from you will be touched by love and the people closest to you will be touched by a pure and a holy love. So let, let's see how he begins to sketch out this argument. First, paying attention to how he talks about how people far from you will be touched by love if, if we're living a love-saturated life. In chapter 13, look back with me at verse one and two. Verse one says, let brotherly love continue. In many ways, this is a banner statement for the chapter. It's gonna drive through these verses. 
He's gonna start to explore what this means. Let brotherly love continue. That word for continue is the same word from John 15 when Jesus says, abide in me. What he's saying is, let brotherly love, affection and care for those around you be what you abide in, what you remain in. Let Let it stay with you at all times. And then he immediately starts talking about how it's gonna affect your relationships. And he starts far from home saying, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He says, when you begin to soak in the presence of Jesus that has been made available to us in Hebrews, he's saying brotherly love will be the story of your life and those that are far from you will be shown hospitality, tender care. Arguably what's in the mind of our author and and in the minds of the first century recipients of this sermon, this letter, would be the story of Abraham and Sarah. You remember when they had three unexpected visitors come to their house? Maybe you've heard or read the story. And they ran about preparing food and killing their fatted calf and getting a beautiful meal ready, only to find out after the fact that their three visitors were God incarnate and two angels. They had no idea. So in this text, the author is saying, hey, some people in showing hospitality to strangers that showed up on the door have actually entertained angels unawares. He's talking probably about a story like that one or there's a few others in the Old Testament similar. In essence, what he's saying is this. When you start to live a life of love, people that feel like perhaps an interruption, feel like strangers distant from you, they all of a sudden will experience warmth and welcome. And he's, he's saying, you have no idea the ways that your life will be enriched as you do that work. It might be that there is a literal angel that ends up in your home, but even if it's not that, what I can say authoritatively with the, the thin ways that hospitality has begun to spring up in my heart, in my wife's heart, is that you will end up with relationships that you would have never guessed, that delight you, that bring life to you, that you go, ah, I would have never guessed that you would be at my table, but look at the way God is knitting our hearts together and the ways that my life is growing more rich as a result. He's saying that when, you're, when your life becomes saturated by love, it starts to touch relationships that feel far from you, strangers. And then in the next breath, he says, not just strangers, but prisoners and the ones that are tormented, the ones that are struggling. Look, he says, remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them and those who are mistreated or tormented or struggling since you are also in the body. Do you hear? He's starting really far from home. He's saying strangers and those that would be easily forgotten. One of the reasons I'm so inspired by Christian and Anna's life, having gotten to go and stay in their home with them and watch the hospitality that they practice is that there are many people in their community and just distant from their community up in the mountains outside of their town in Honduras that are easily forgotten, profoundly impoverished, without access to clean water or to education, but they have arranged their lives to go to the people that no one else is going to. Sounds a lot like Jesus, who is better than anyone and anything else in the world, that when we, when we draw near to him and we start to be saturated by him, people that we would think, ooh, And if we're honest, we've all been here. The person or the opportunity that steps into your life and you go, that's going to be really, really inconvenient. I I start reworking my calendar in my head. I start thinking about this person and the ways that inviting them into my life is going to be really costly. And everything that is natural in me 
says, steer clear, steer clear, steer clear. You know, like try to get around this. But when we have been ushered into the holy of holies and we're experiencing the character of Jesus, what it's saying is this, you will live a love-saturated life. And like Anna and Christian, you'll find the people that, that everyone else is sidestepping and you'll say, what would it look like to show kindness to them like they were my own body? A love-saturated life touches those that are far from home. But not just that, it's not just wide, it's also deep. And he immediately goes from the relationships that are furthest from us to the relationship that is closest. And in essence, what he's doing here is he's saying in all the others in between. He's painting the picture of a love-saturated life that's touching all relationships. And he goes, okay, strangers, people in prison, those tormented, okay, let's talk about your spouse. And in essence, he's going, I don't care how far or how near we're talking, a love-saturated life is going to build deep and wide relationships. Look at the way that he turns the corner in verse four to this deep relationship, this central relationship. In verse four, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This word here where he says, let the marriage be held in honor. It's a really interesting word that's used throughout the New Testament, and most of the time what it's talking about is treasure, gems, gold, uh, precious stones. Uh, For the farmer, it is his harvest that he's waiting for. It is the thing that is most prized, most cherished, most valuable. He's going, listen, If you're going to live a love-saturated life, it better touch people really far from home and it better be very clearly displayed in your home such that marriage is treated like it is this precious jewel to be like handled with tremendous care. Husbands, if we could kind of peel your wives off this morning and interview them in in the building next door, would they say, ah, that's a description of the way my husband treats me. Like a precious jewel held in high honor. To live a love-saturated life, that is your calling, men. Women, would your husband say, my wife delights in me. She cares for me. She holds me like a precious jewel. She looks at me like I am honored in her sight. Saying a love-saturated life, it will touch far from home, but then it will, it will sink really deep at home. And he says, and for that reason, the marriage bed will be undefiled, unpolluted. If marriage is this profound, beautiful, valuable gift from God, and sex is the gift that God has given to knit husband and wife together, properly experienced within the context of the promise of marriage, It is the only rightful place where sex is to be celebrated, enjoyed, is in the safety of a promise that says, I guarantee you I'll be here again tomorrow. You're safe with me. That is the place where we can be naked and unashamed. And what he is saying is this, is that a love-saturated life touches people really far and close. And as a result, the really tender, closest relationships will be safe, beautiful, undefiled, pure. A love-saturated life. It sounds lovely, doesn't it? 
The relationships furthest from you touched by kindness and brotherly care, the relationships closest to you held in high honor in a pure and undefiled way. He's going, this is what you've been designed for. The journey into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, had had an end game. Not just so that you could be near God, that is amazing and stunning, but it's so that his character would reshape and transform you and you'd be released as you enjoy his love, to share his love. You see, what does a love-saturated life look like? It looks like the relationships furthest from you and closest to you are going to be transformed. They're going to be touched by it. But then he makes this really interesting turn that I had to sit with for a while to feel the logic of the Holy Spirit in it. And then when it dawned on me, I was like, ah, of course. Of course. The brilliance of this author, the brilliance of the Holy Spirit, because he's talking about brotherly love continuing and being displayed in all of our relationships. And then in the very next breath, he starts talking about your stuff. He starts talking about, do you love your stuff? Are you greedy? And do you just always want more? I think what he is going to display for us is this reality, that one way to wring out the sponge of your life, of all the love that you have to give, so that you have nothing left. You're just a dry, caked over, no saturation in you sponge, right? The, The way that you get there is that you love stuff a lot. If you have misordered loves, everything we just talked about will not be available to you. To the greedy and the perpetually discontent, The ones that live their lives day after day just going, I just wish I had more, then I'd be happy. Then I'd finally be able to be present and joyful with the people closest to me. The the husband and the dad that comes home at the end of the day or the mom and the wife that comes home at the end of the day that can't stop thinking about all the ways that they're trying to get ahead in life and as a result, their mind is elsewhere and they're not present to the people right in front of them, not loving and cherishing them. Our love of stuff rings us out and prevents us from living this life of love that we're being called to. Let me show it to you in the text. See how he turns the corner in verse five right after talking about brotherly love continuing in all of these ways. He says this, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Arthur Brooks is a professor at the Harvard Business School and he writes regularly for The Atlantic. And he has given a, an equation that displays the way that contentment works. This is his equation. He says contentment equals what you have over or divided by what you want. And he says, so many of us, we we focus on contentment by saying, I'm going to focus on that numerator and drive it as big as possible. If I can get the numerator big, then I'm going to find contentment. The struggle is what, what we find out experientially and what God says to be true biblically is that when you focus on the top half, the bottom swells with it. Actually, you can never catch up if you're focusing on, on, I just want to have more so that I can finally have enough. He says, his argument as a Harvard MBA and a, a, an author, he says, what if, what if we just actually started figuring out how to reduce the bottom half? What if we started to reduce all the things that we wanted so that we, 
he said, it's, in fact, oftentimes it's people that have far less that are far more content because they've actually learned how to work the equation. What this text is saying beautifully and powerfully is that it starts off by saying, hey, let's reduce the denominator. Let's take it down a little bit. Would you stop loving money? You don't need all that you think you need. Your life is being robbed from being a love-saturated life because your affections are misordered and you're so focused on things that are so unimportant. Stop loving those things. But then did you hear the way he turned the corner? He says, by the way, you have more than you could ever imagine. He doesn't just reduce the denominator. He explodes the numerator by telling you what you actually have. Did you hear it? Look at the verses again. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So he says, quit. Let's, let's reduce that uh, longing for more. And then he says, by the way, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you have so much more than you ever imagined. I am with you and I'm not going anywhere. Nobody can touch you or wound you. You have all that you could possibly need. And by the way, as you keep your hearts free from the love of money, you will finally be made whole to the point where you're abounding. You're overflowing with joy and contentment because you have far more than you could have ever imagined and you need far less than you thought you did. You follow me? That is an equation for being able to show up and let brotherly love continue. The person that it's not always stirring with greed and discontent, but is joyful and at rest and starting to pay attention to people, now the person far from them and you start going, oh, that could be costly to love that person. But it's like, I have an overflow of the presence of God and his kindness. It's not all about me. And I'm, I'm free to love. I'm free to show up. You see, He's saying, what does a love-saturated life look like? It looks like the relationships far from you and close to you being touched by the presence of God through you. And part of that's going to mean that you quit loving your stuff. You're freed from your love of stuff. You're content financially. Okay. That's a quick sketch. It's like we're sitting on the street side, you know, when you pay the guy $5 to draw your picture. He's kind of sketching out for us. We've sat down, we've gone, okay, author, tell me what does a love-saturated life look like? And he's like sketching it out. He's like, okay, the relationships furthest from you are gonna be touched. The relationships closest to you are gonna be, have this deep experience of honor and care. And by the way, you're gonna be done with this rat race of thinking you just have to accumulate more and more and more, okay? He sketched it out really quickly for us, but it leaves us, if, if you're like me, it leaves me wondering, okay, I, I get it. How do we do that really? You've taken us on this journey. You've taken us into the Holy of Holies. You've brought us to the termination point of saying, be a people that loves like this, but how? And I think he's going to give us three quick marks of how we can actually step into this glorious life that leaves relationships far and near touched as we ourselves are overflowing with contentment and joy. The first way that he says when he talks about how is this. Find and follow faithful leaders. You need someone with skin on that is not perfectly, but faithfully walking this journey ahead of you. 
We all, the New Testament makes really clear, we are all disciples called to make disciples. And a disciple means a learner, someone that is following someone that's ahead of them. Ultimately, we're all called to be disciples of Jesus. But like Paul says in other places in the New Testament, he says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Because some days, you're gonna need someone with skin on that's showing you what it looks like to walk with him. So right after he sketches out a life marked by love, he immediately starts talking about the sort of leaders that you're responding to in your life. And I want you to, I'm gonna read the, the verses about the leaders. I want you to pay attention to how it intensifies as it goes. He's gonna say, remember your leaders. He's gonna say, imitate your leaders. He's gonna say, obey your leaders. He's gonna say, submit to your leaders. It is an intensification as he's saying, okay, what's it going to look like? You need someone out in front of you that you're going to remember, imitate, obey, submit to. Let's see if we can make sense of this together. Look at verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to look at verse 17 as well. This is right on the heels of what we were just reading. He says, so remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's brought us right to this point where I think we're going, but how do we do it? And he's going, I'll tell you how. Look at the people out in front of you. Look at their lives and imitate them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which you have... Uh, which have not benefited benefited those devoted to them. So he's saying, remember your leaders. Don't be led astray by all these other teachings and all this religion. Remember them. Keep your eyes on them. And then he comes back in verse 17 to this idea of leaders. He's still working the same idea in verse 17. He says, obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, it is incredibly important in the heart and the mind of this author, and for that reason, in the heart and the mind of the Holy Spirit, that if we're gonna live love-saturated lives, we've got the right sort of people out in front of us. So my question is this, who are you following as they are following Christ? Who is it? Not looking for someone perfect, not looking for someone that does everything exactly right, but someone that has faithfully, that is sold out for Jesus and that is out in front of you running hard after him. And you go, I know that when in doubt, I can do what I see in this person. I can reproduce the faith that I see working in them. The author is saying is that if we're going to live these sorts of lives where brotherly love continues, where it marks every part of our lives, we're gonna need faithful models out in front of us. Our hope is in raising up and investing in really amazing house church shepherds that as you find your home here and you connect to a house church, you are meaningfully, relationally connected to the body of Christ with really faithful leaders that know your name and pray for you and are investing in you. We're glad to have you. If you're a visitor and you're in this room just worshiping with us, welcome. We don't think you have been to church you have come to a worship gathering and we're so glad you're here. To, to be in church is to be in relationship with God's people. So we're trying to eradicate that language of like, I went to church. 
I'm going to church, meaning coming in this room. That's not what this is. This is the church gathered to worship God, but where you become a part of the church, where you enter into the church, is when you show up in a living room with other people and you know their names and you love them and you learn their stories and you look at the people that have been trained and equipped and are growing into their leadership to tend to that house church and you go, I, by the way, have models out in front of me, people that are following Jesus. I can follow them as he, as they follow him. Yeah? And I would just say this, as an elder-led church, we have nine elders that take very seriously Hebrews 13, verse 17, this idea that we are gonna give an account for your souls before God. That's why if you're a gospel partner, what you've heard from us is that we have printed cards with the face of every gospel partner and their next steps of obedience on the back of it. And our elders pray through those. I was praying for some this morning, Kevin and Jacqueline Tien praying for them this morning. You know, I was looking at these faces and working through these stories and praying for their next steps of obedience with Jesus that I take seriously, I'm gonna have to give an account. So do the other eight elders. And I just want you to know, the nine of us are not perfect. We are flawed. We don't have it all together. But I know those men, I know them to the bottom. And what I can say is this, when in doubt, do what you see your elders doing. They love Jesus. They're laboring to pursue him. We are laboring to set the pace for us as a community, not perfectly, but faithfully. And this text is saying your soul needs that. We live in a time and a place that is allergic to any sense of leadership or structure. But what the text says is that if we're gonna live love-saturated lives, if we're gonna be the people that God's calling us to, we need right authority and we need to find it and follow it in such a way that we gladly imitate their faith, even submitting to the lead of those that have authority over us. This is God's design so that we could be the sort of community that lives love-saturated lives. That's not all. How do we do it? We find and follow faithful leaders. Secondly, we go outside the camp and look at Jesus. Said another way, we need to have our hearts melted by the cross of Christ. Let me show you in verses 12 through 16. He says this. So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. To sanctify means to make holy or whole, to equip you to be the sorts of people that let brotherly love continue. It required that Jesus bled and died outside of the camp. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and to bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share, and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you hear that he's right back to brotherly love continuing? In verse 16, he's going, so share freely, tend to people. He's back to where he started in this chapter, but now he's telling us how, and the how is this. Go outside the camp and look at Jesus. Outside the camp was the ashamed, embarrassed, degraded place. When Jesus was crucified and killed, it was not in the city center, it was not in the place of power, it was on the trash heap outside of town. 
It was there where all of the aggression and the anger of the people was poured out on him, where he was drinking the penalty of sin all the way to the bottom, and he was doing it in the place that smoldered with burning trash. It was, it was, a, it was the degraded place. And what he's saying is, would you go out there and join him? Go look at him. Leave the place of power and comfort. Your attempt to hold it all together and say, I just want a life that is never under reproach. Nobody ever looking down on me. Nobody ever thinking less of me. I'm just gonna try to hold it all together. And when life is about you, and life is about you holding it all together, the life of love is not available to you. But what he's saying is, if you will get outside of yourself, go outside. Go to the place of degradation and reproach. Go be with Jesus and sit at the foot of the cross and look at him and go, ah, you have loved me. You've loved me like no one else has ever loved me. You have served me like no one else has served me. You have sacrificed for me like no one else has ever sacrificed for me. And I will be found in this place as a Jesus person. Like no matter what it costs me, no matter how many people look at me and go like, you're really into Jesus. Like you're kind of like one of those, you must not be very smart. You must be intellectually flabby. You must not care about science. You must not care about progress. You must not care about inclusion. You must not care about, right, all of a sudden, all the things that if you're too associated with Jesus, people are gonna look at you and go, that's a little backwards, don't you think? And you go, I gladly go outside the camp and I'm with him. Like no one has operated with a love-saturated life like this one. Do you see his blood flowing for you and for me? Do you see that he was so saturated that he let it all be poured out, blood and water as the spear pierced him? He was going, it's all for you. It's all for you. Look at me. Are you really going to cling to your life and think it's about this stuff? about your power and your reputation and your comfort, please, people, don't miss what life is about. Go outside the camp and let the cross of Christ melt your heart. And then beautifully, he concludes by not just saying let your heart be melted, but let it be filled by the glories of the resurrection. In 13 chapters, the author of Hebrews has talked about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice time and again, the great high priest. He is higher than the angels. He has accomplished all these things, but he has not yet once mentioned resurrection. And as like the glorious exclamation point, like done and done, he says, go outside the camp and see him crucified. Have your heart of stone transformed. You get a heart of flesh that is soft and ready to be saturated. And then this is what he says in verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is this, that Jesus wasn't just crucified in the place of degradation. He has been resurrected to the place of power and he has everything good in his hands.
Did you hear it? He will give you, God through this resurrected Jesus, the great shepherd of your souls will give you everything good. He will equip you with everything that you need to live a life to the glory of God. Friends, this is, Holy Spirit, help us believe this. Because Hebrews is true, you have been led by Jesus into the heart of God, into the holy of holies. And what he's saying is you dwell there by faith with open hands and open hearts. He will give you everything good. Everything you could possibly need to live a life to the glory of God. Not through your striving, through your resting in his presence. Remember that the author's been leading us to to know his perpetual rest all the way since chapter four. He's going, come in, reside with me. I will give you everything you need to live a life that is rich and eternal and powerful and saturated with love such that everyone who touches your life touches my presence. You get to be an outpouring, an outpost of my love in the world. Listen, brothers and sisters, you are called to live a love-saturated life, one that touches relationships far and near, that is free of the love of the things of this world. As you follow leaders with your eyes on a crucified Christ, he will fill you with resurrection power, and you can actually do it. (laughs) What a life worth living Go in the power of the resurrected king and live a love-saturated life. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, thank you for what you've accomplished on our behalf in your death and your resurrection. Forgive us for being a people of small affections who love ourselves first and most. Help us to get outside of ourselves, to get outside of our comfort and our power and our greed and our lust. Help us to go outside of the camp altogether and to see you truly. I pray that there would be a love revolution, that ours would be a family that really actually believes this text, that you've given us all that we need to love and welcome strangers and to tend to those that have been forgotten and to have rich and deep marriages and friendships and the relationships closest to us. We wanna be that sort of community. Would you help us to walk in obedience and in faith so that we would experience it? Bless my brothers and sisters. Pour out your spirit on them. And I pray to my friends here today that do not yet know Jesus. God, would you speak to them right now, wooing them, helping them to feel their limited resources. They don't have, we don't have in and of ourselves what it takes to live a life that's really marked by love. And I pray that that would create sadness and longing in the hearts of those that have yet to trust Jesus. And I pray that in Jesus they would see all of your love pouring out towards them and that they would run to it and they would drink freely from that grace. We love you. We thank you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.